Christian, some people meet in college or at work or because they're next door neighbors or even on Tinder. But you and I, Christian, we met at a free love commune. That is indeed the truth, Dan. And uh, how could I forget? You were tall, dark, and inquisitive, and also from Chicago. Yeah, we have that in common. Let's start start that over. Let's start that over. (laughs) Should I mention Chicago or no? I think so. I think no. But the truth is I was doing a podcast and you were one of the experts I was interviewing and we met at the Oneida Community Mansion House. Correct, yes. And you had this idea to do another podcast series and I said yes immediately. But we should talk maybe for a second about why we're interested in communes and kind of why we're qualified to talk about them. Uh, Why don't you start? What's your background with communes? Well, I've been studying uh, intentional communities for about 22 years now. My first encounter with an intentional community was a trip I took as an undergrad from Bloomington, Indiana, down to Rugby, Tennessee, which was the site of a Victorian era commune founded by Thomas Hughes. And my mind was just blown that a bunch of upper middle class English people would choose voluntarily to relocate from comfort in England to rural Tennessee with the goal of remaking society exactly the way that they wanted it. And on that trip, kind of providentially, I stopped at the Shaker Village of Pleasant Hill, Kentucky. And for me, that was the epiphany to see that a group of people had voluntarily separated from the larger world around them. And everything they did was deliberate and executed through the paradigm of their religion, their architecture, music, social arrangements, furniture, agriculture, you name it. And that was a fascinating idea to me. And the more I explored it, I realized there have been literally thousands of groups like this in American history. Yeah. And, you know, maybe you should say like what your job is now and how you've been involved with this work for, for so long. Absolutely. Yeah. So I was the curator of collections at Hancock Shaker Village from 2001 to 2009. That was managing one of the historic Shaker sites of about 20 buildings. And I ran the library and archives there and exhibits as well. And then I was recruited by Hamilton College in Clinton, New York, where one of the major special collections is on intentional communities. So I've shepherded the growth of that for the last 12 years and built many, many relationships with contemporary communities, as well as researchers working on the history of communalism in America. Yeah, and that's kind of how we met because I was doing a podcast on the United Community, which is just uh, down the road from Hamilton College. And so they recommended I talk to you and we hit it off and you invited me to your archive to come see it. And I almost didn't go, but it was understandable. (laughs) I was on this trip and I was busy and I was recording and interviewing. I was like, I like this guy. And I went and I saw your archive and I was blown away. But for me, we were talking about how we got interested in communism. And for me, I think it goes back to my parents. So my mom was a super idealistic woman. She was a social worker, kind of a Joan Baez, Greenwich Village sensibility. And my dad was a political scientist and he was more analytical and pragmatic. And I think I've kind of inherited a bit of both. And so for me, I guess at the gut level, I find the idealism so appealing, but I also have this really skeptical voice in my head that's kind of probing and finding flaws and just thinking through how any scheme premised on good intention is likely to end in tears. Oh, yeah. You, you feel that way too? Yeah. I mean, there's a wide gulf um, between the appealing and the appalling when you study these groups. <laughs> and uh, they fall all along that spectrum. And, and I've had the same fascination. I think there are so many aspects of communal living, socialism that seem very attractive. And when we look at the many different ways they've been implemented in practice, some successful, some absolutely tragic, there's quite a a compelling history to explore. Yeah, I guess where I come down is I often share the diagnosis that these communes offer on what's wrong with mainstream society. And I'm like, yeah, they're right about that. But I'm usually pretty skeptical of the prescriptions they have for how to fix it. And I guess that sort of comes from the sense I have that people who join communes often have this really expansive and optimistic view of human nature. Yes. And yeah. And I just don't know that we're wired that way. I I kind of fear we're not. Um, I would agree. And, uh, you know, basically we're, we're living in a constitutional federal Republic 
that was designed to afford people the liberty to pursue happiness in their own way, whether that is as a business person or as a member of one of these intentional communities. And the great paradox there is that for many people that join these, it involves what scholar Tim Miller calls the voluntary submission of individual will. And that seems so at odds with self-determined frontier spirit that most people associate with the United States of America. Yeah. And I second all of that. And I guess for me, there's sort of a human level fascination I have, which is with, with the people who, who I guess they, I'm just sort of moved by these people who have the courage to fully live out their ideals and, and the risks that they take often, you know, losing their families and their livelihoods. Um, and I'm sort of a coward, I feel like in comparison. So I'm impressed with them, but I'm also really worried about them. Um, yeah. And on the other hand, some of these experiments have been pretty successful, I would say. Absolutely. And what, I, what I'm most excited about for um, season one of, of our show is to get to talk to the experts who really know these communes best. And we've lined up interviews with, with members of current and former members of communes. And I just am so intrigued by their, their experience. And I'm delighted to be going on this journey with you. And we should say the show is called Communes USA. I'm Dan Greenstone in Chicago, and I'm a documentary filmmaker and podcaster. And that's Christian Goodwillie in Clinton, New York at Hamilton College. There's a reason that the three of us are doing this podcast together. And uh, that's because you two are a very talented pair of filmmakers. You've done two really excellent documentaries on communal groups. And I really think you should uh, make the audience aware of those. All right. We will shamelessly self-promote, Travis. Yes? Fine, fine. Okay. Okay. So we have two movies out on communes. And uh, the first is called Last Believer, which is about the House of David. And it's available on Amazon Prime. And the second one is called Far Out West, also on Amazon Prime and now Voodoo and Tubi. So, yeah. But Christian, we're not just shamelessly self-promoting ourselves because you're the star of each film. Well, stars a little strong, but you're in each film. Yeah, I'm more of a black hole, I think. (laughs) (laughs) But that is actually how we all came together. And so it's I guess it's fitting that we're um, undertaking this uh, project of learning more about communes uh, as a threesome. Dang, that's It's, it's out. That's so far out west of you. (laughs) (laughs) yeah and the the title of the show communes usa is referencing uh, a book that was published surveying a lot of the 1960s communes when there was a great resurgence of communal living in the united states and those are probably the groups that most of our listeners might conjure a mental image of when they think about a commune yet the history of communalism or socialism in North America amongst European settlers goes right back to the 17th century. Uh, As a matter of fact, the Plymouth colony, the pilgrims we think of, were originally intended to be a socialistic community. So it's really right in the genetics of the American founding and it's continued all the way through to the present. That's I agree with all of that, but there is a bit of a tension there, right? Like, and I think I love the title. You came up with the title Communes USA. I I like it because it's challenging. Like, am I wrong to think that there is this sort of feeling in in America that that these communes are somehow un-American? You're not wrong at all. And as a matter of fact, many of them faced violent persecution, attempts by legislatures, usually at state levels to make them disband or disqualify their communal ownership of property. Uh, And of course, a lot of that was motivated by the fact that their social arrangements were usually pushing the boundaries, either regressively, in the case of some of them with celibacy or even making women more subservient than was the norm at the time, but more typically, really progressively um, being racially diverse affording women equal rights, in some cases, affording women dominance, uh, not just in the everyday life of the community, but theologically, which is extremely threatening, of course, to most mainstream Christians in America. So they've had a rough go of it, yet they have persisted and some have really prospered. 
Yeah. And gender, you know, just the reading I've been doing to prepare for the show, the innovations on gender are really a striking theme. And uh, we're going to see a lot of that this season as we go and, and look at, at several different communes. Um, yeah. Is it too simple to say that, you know, there's obviously the word commune and we think of the Cold War and communism. Does that explain the aversion that a lot of Americans have to this idea? Or is it deeper than that? More recently, it certainly does. Uh, I think historically, the 19th century, the 18th century, these groups were more of a curiosity. In times of war, they could be perceived as a threat. And some of that was based on the ethnic or cultural makeup of the communities. But yes, since the advent of Soviet communism, there's certainly been a renewed look and the words, you know, it's the same word, the same root. So for instance, even a group as apple pie as the shakers in the 1930s needed to print a small asterisk disclaimer on a lot of their literature saying not to be confused with Soviet communism. So you, mm. you have a real point there. Yeah. And we're going to get to this a little bit more detail in this episode about a couple of the really significant communes in American history. Um, but before we do that, I think it might be useful to do a little definition work. And I'm going to hand this one over to you. Um, how would you define a commune? Traditionally, I say it's a group of people who associate together on a shared set of principles or values that typically hold property in common. They live together. They do not have to be religious. Some of them are secular. And they're usually at a marginal end of some uh, aspect of the normal society, whether it's social relations, sexual, gender, agricultural, economic, technological, certainly theological, they're pushing some kind of boundary. And so they wanted to separate themselves from the broader society. I like it, but it's a bit technocratic. And I thought it might be fun if we did a little, a little quiz. Timothy Miller uh, was a professor at University of Kansas. He wrote an amazing book, The Encyclopedic Guide to American Intentional Communities. And I have drawn a few from there and then also a few from elsewhere. And I'm going to have you and we'll see if Travis Chandler, our engineer, wants to play along. I'm going to give you a little quiz and see if you think this qualifies, according to Timothy Miller, as a commune. All right. Sound good? All right. Sounds good. Number one. I'll play. What the heck? The Chi-Fi Fraternity. University of Michigan branch. I'm going to go with yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, well, you know, let's see how that flies. For the, for the purposes of, of our show, I would say no. Um, they do uh, share a set of principles and values. We won't really discuss exactly what those are, but uh, it's too transient and they don't probably have actual property in common other than whatever their relationship is to the frat house that they they occupy. The beer, the beer fund. Christian, you get the win on this one. They were not in Timothy Miller's book. He specifically excludes <laughs> fraternities. There you go. But while I was looking them up, I did come across a very positive review um, by a Michigan student that I'm going to read a bit of it to you. Their house is huge, so you don't have to worry about the space being all cramped up and sweaty. The guys are nice and funny. Just remember to keep watch of your jacket. If you went with one, it's common for them to get stolen. Mm. Also, they have the best day parties and the jungle juice is deadly. Ooh, yes. Uh, okay, example two, the Manson family. Well, Travis? <sighs> okay, so that sounds to me like the I, their behavior seems culty to an extent that it's sept into the, the social consciousness. So I'm going to have to say yes on that one. I didn't really know about the the frat, but this seems like a like an over the top yes to me. I'm going to agree. They certainly have one of the hallmark characteristics uh, of these groups, which is a charismatic leader, and talk about the voluntary submission of will. The followers of Charles Manson committed horrendous murders because he asked them to. He's got a, a messiah complex, so I mean he's a slam dunk. Okay. Yes, you're both right. They're in Miller's book. Um, again, it's not a book of recommended places to go, but it is just a catalog of communes. And they're obviously at the extreme end of what can go wrong. Um, but how was their okay. jungle juice? And would you keep your coat if you went there? <laughs> <laughs> That's a fine question. Uh, 
<laughs> All right, number three, Celebration, Florida. And if you don't recall, this is the town that Disney purposely built as sort of a ideal utopian American suburban town with a nice town square. And I'm going first on all these. Is that how we've we've set this up? So next sure. time I want Christian to go first every time. So I can just follow what he said. <laughs> <laughs> you know, follow the scholar is usually a good way to do the quiz. But um, you know, I, I would say, okay, so from my perspective, Disney has a cult element to it that is surprisingly invasive despite its uh, Mickey Mouse exterior, literal Mickey Mouse exterior. So I might be wrong, but I'm going to go ahead and say yes, just in case. Okay. Um, it would probably straddle a line, but I'm going to say that the financial cohesiveness of this group would put it outside of a true community because I believe you're all buying in and can then sell out on an individual basis versus kind of a consecration of property that you would have to go to court to recover. Well, you're good. Travis, he's crushing you. Um, I, I knew it. <laughs> yeah. Like, so literally it does. So first of all, it does have an entry in Timothy Miller's book. Um, and he explains kind of what they were all about and trying to do. But at the end, he says almost exactly what Christian said. He says, in any event, it probably does not have sufficient financial sharing to qualify as a true intentional community. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing. These groups involve true believers and risk. But for them, it's not risk. It's salvation. You know, it's uh, it's a pathway to a better place from which yeah. they don't intend to return usually. Huh. All right. Last one. Burning Man. Oof. So... Yeah, <laughs> I think I said yes to all of them. Next quiz, I'm going to be a little bit more uh, <laughs> careful with my yeses, but Burning Man, okay, wait. Uh, according to the actual stuff that Christian's talking about, they they briefly share a commitment, right? Um, to I, my understanding, I have never been a, a lifelong sadness for myself, but uh, you know, one day I'll get there. But they and they share stuff while they're there. There's no money, from what I understand. There's a lot of barter and what have you. But it's not a lifelong commitment. They, they all go back to their lives afterwards. So I think doesn't that disqualify them? That it's just a, it's a concert series essentially, and then they go back to their Christian. normal lives. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm going to agree with Travis here, and and actually, Burning Man fits very nicely into a construct that the philosopher Peter Lamborn Wilson created. He published a book called TAS, Temporary Autonomous Zones, which describes exactly something like what Burning Man is. And we saw the same thing happen last summer in Seattle and was explicitly described as such by the news and I think even by the government in uh, Washington that they kind of accepted the existence of this place. So that would not qualify because it it's designed to be temporary and there's no long-term commitment. There's no binding covenant that those people enter. Okay. You guys both nailed it. Travis, that was well done. You didn't drop the philosopher there, but basically you got it exactly right. Um, it is interesting. If you look at the Burning Man webpage, other than that temporary transient element, it certainly does seem to qualify. I mean, they have a section of their 10 principles. It's called communal effort. And, you know, the rest of them, would certainly fit the kind of program that a commune would have. You know, well, I, I, if they were able to keep it going, uh, you know, if the if the goal was to keep that concert series going indefinitely, I think they win, right? Or not win, but they become a yes, like they become a, a commune. Um, it's just that they, they I, but they're in the middle of the desert too. They only have enough to keep them going for a certain amount of time, right? So they'd have to relocate to a more appropriate locale if they were going to do the long haul. You have a very valid point there, Travis. Um, a similar group would be the Rainbow family that have gathered each year since, I think, the very late 1960s. And they really are considered a commune by many people, yet they really do only gather once a year in a different location. But they have that perpetuating aspect to them, like what uh, was observed on the website of Burning Man. Excellent. I think what we said we'd do um, this episode is go over some of the famous communes in American history and kind of tease them out a little bit to get at some of the big issues um, that we're going to see recurring and the big questions we're going to see recurring in communal history. And um, so we've both taken the lead on a couple of them, Christian. Do you want to start with the Shakers? 
Yeah, I'd be glad to. So the series is going to really focus on more obscure communities, but we felt this episode needed to lay the groundwork using the examples of some better known communities. Um, and, and to start with, the Shakers, a, a current group, they've been in North America since 1774. Shakers believe that the Christ spirit returned to earth using Mother Ann Lee as the vessel for the redemption of mankind. They are what's called post-millennial. But they believe that Mother Anne, her message, her, her new interpretation of Christianity was the advent of the millennium. And so they believe they are living in the millennium, a thousand years of Christ's kingdom on earth. And they have, since the beginning, practiced gender equality. Um, they believe in confession of sins, communal property. And they were one of the most successful communities of the 19th century. And, and as I mentioned, have persisted to today. And if we use Tim Miller's model of evaluating communities as either arcs from which people seek to withdraw from the larger society for safety or lighthouses that seek to evangelize and draw people in and really revolutionize the world beyond the boundaries of the community. I feel like the Shakers fall more into the arc category. They did, of course, seek to gain converts uh, as a celibate community through sending missionaries to ongoing religious revivals. But beyond that, they really tried to keep to within their own communities. Yeah, well, so the Shakers raise a whole bunch of interesting questions for me, Christian. And you've written a book about the Shakers, just one? Uh, I mean, quite a, quite a few. <laughs> <laughs> and did you live? So you basically lived at, in the Shaker community? Well, I live nearby, but I worked at, at a former Shaker community for about 10 years. And there were no living Shakers there? No. Okay. There's a few left. Is that right? Yeah. Today, there's three <laughs> Shakers living in Sabbath Day Lake, Maine. Okay. Um, just one thing that struck me is this idea that communes often, but not always, I suspect, but often have a charismatic leader. And you mentioned Mother Ann Lee. Um, of course, she was not around for real long once the community started, right? Um, did she fit into that mold of the charismatic leader? Yeah, it's a great question. I think she certainly does. But the real miracle, to make a kind of a bad pun of the Shakers, is that although she died in 1784, the Shakers grew and grew well beyond her death. And as they expanded west of the Appalachians, the role of Mother Anne theologically as kind of a, a return vessel for the Christ spirit was actually kept hidden from new converts because they thought it would be just too radical, you know, and might actually put people off. But they were uh, let in on that in time. And the movement thrived despite the lack of her physical presence. Huh. And then the other thing that struck me is there's this question, which uh, you mentioned at the beginning of the program, um, that there's a sort of a tension in these communes between um, that they're, you know, I mean, it's in the word, you know, commune, like there's this idea of sharing. And with that comes like an implicit promise of the quality but often these groups are actually in reality highly unequal and there's often a dominant figure whether it's the charismatic leader or someone else who takes the reins what's the shakers track record on that issue yeah it's a great question um the concept of opportunity for equality versus the actual achievement of equity in any of these groups or in our own broader society is really a fraught issue it, it goes right back Dan, to what you talked about in terms of uh, our essential nature as human beings, even within a community like the Shakers, where everyone was supposed to subsume their individual will to the greater will of the community's spiritual leadership, invariably, you have some members that are more motivated than others, more intelligent than others, um, or may just have base motivations that you shouldn't have as a Shaker. They might want to enjoy a few more little luxuries. Maybe they're traveling salespeople for the Shakers, yet they're gone quite often and they're staying in the worldly hotels and enjoying worldly uh, beverages and things like that. So it really goes down to how tightly regulated a community is and how much discipline and authority is exercised. And unfortunately, 
that often tips the balance into these abusive and exploitive communal situations where people end up being really badly abused in the name of equity, according to the vision of one of these charismatic leaders. I think the Shakers in general succeeded on that count, and they were far more tolerant of people leaving. They didn't like people to leave, and they thought they were backsliders or fleshmongers, but they didn't try to make your life miserable afterwards or prevent you from leaving. You mentioned uh, Tim Miller's concept of the the arc versus the lighthouse. And I like that dichotomy. I know sometimes some groups can have elements of both, but is it fair to say that the celibacy of the shakers is sort of a sign that they're an arc, like they're waiting for the end times. And so there's no point in propagating. Is that kind of, am I reading that right? Yeah. uh, Well, they're trying to bring mankind back to the state of Adam in the garden. And I I say only Adam and not Adam and Eve, because um, if you interpret Genesis a certain way, you know, I mean, it's pretty explicit. Eve is made from a rib of Adam. Therefore, Adam contained within him at the creation, both genders. And that's what the Shakers were trying to transcend gender and by celibacy, And through this reunification of the Christ spirit in male and female through Jesus and Mother Anne, bring human beings back to that pre-fall state uh, almost without gender. And so, yes, that's truly an arc. I mean, they never expected all of humanity to follow their example, but they wanted to put it out there. Interesting. Oh, you guys hang on a second. I've got a cat. I've got to feed. Dan, uh, do you ever wonder about angels? <laughs> Not, I mean, yes. <laughs> do you think they like to uh, do the wild thing, like to get it on? Uh, sure. All right, well, let me tell you what uh, Matthew has to say about that. At the <laughs> resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. So what does that mean? Does that mean angels do get it on or they don't get it on? Interesting. Yeah. Um, And this is, uh, you know, as we transition from talking about the Shakers who decidedly believed the example of the angels was no, that they did not enjoy that type of intercourse, we'll meet someone who interpreted that piece of scripture entirely in the opposite direction. That was John Humphrey Noyes. And Dan, you know a lot about uh, him and his community. Well, yeah. And it's so interesting, right? Because the same biblical passage that the Shakers used to justify celibacy. And you can't help but notice Mother Ann Lee was a female. And I believe, tell me uh, if I have this right, Christian, she had a terrible relationship with her husband. Is that right? Yeah, she had four children. None of them survived long past infancy. And her husband was somewhat inconstant, although he did follow her to America, but he left her once they reached New York City. So Hmm. did they have a great marriage by modern standards? Probably not. Okay, so... Then we have, uh, in contrast, John Humphrey Noyes, who's this young guy in Vermont, um, and is just out and about trying to meet women by his own account, (laughs) uh, as one does in the early 1800s. And his mom sends him to a religious revival. um, And he went kind of just to make her happy. Um, But these religious revivals were wild and intense um, in antebellum America, and it worked. And by his own account, he prayed and studied the Bible for two days straight until he was literally sweating. And it was completely changed man. And he went off to seminary school at Yale, and he got in hot water there um, when he preached a passage from the book of John. And that passage says, he that committeth sin is of the devil. And Noise chose to interpret this to say that you, you need not commit sin. And he declared that, in fact, he was now done with sin and he was, uh, in fact, perfect. Um, there's a term for this, a Christian perfectionist, but it's quite a heresy. And they kicked him out of, out of Yale and they literally took away his license to preach that they had bestowed on him. And so he takes to the road and he becomes an itinerant preacher trying to drum up followers who are also perfectionists. And he starts to get a few recruits, mostly from his family at first. 
but there's this sort of, and I think we, we touched on this earlier in, in early noise, you see this tension between the kind of radical freedom of, of someone who's like, I'm not bound by the rules of society anymore because I am literally a saint who can't sin. But all of his followers had to submit to him in complete control. Um, they had to take a vow that says that he is the father and overseer whom the Holy Ghost has set over us. He actually made his own mother do this. And, you know, there's this sort of creepy Freudian thing going on there. <laughs> um, he met this woman in his travels named Mary Cragen, and he found her just irresistible. And it kind of makes you blush when you read the way he talks about her. He, he called her intoxicating. And um, he basically, because he wanted to sleep with her, even though he was married, this is where things take a really interesting turn. And he says, you know, saints don't have to obey the normal marriage rules. And he inaugurates this idea that he calls complex marriage, um, which he uses to convince her, Mary Cragen's husband and his own wife, that it's okay for him to sleep with Mary Cragen. Um, now, they got a bit in a bit of trouble in his small town in Vermont when the word of this started to leak out. So he and his followers left for where you're at in central New York to Oneida, and they kept recruiting followers. And I'll turn it over to you here for a second. I mean, there are a lot of similarities with what they were doing in the Shakers, right? Absolutely. Yeah. The idea, Noyes called it Bible communism. Uh, the Shakers didn't have a term for it, but it is rooted in the New Testament in the way that the first followers of Jesus, who were technically Jewish, but became known as Christians, lived. And in the book of Acts, it actually describes quote, all that believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. Now, those of us that are familiar with Karl Marx might hear a little bit of resonance there yeah. uh, with what he said, but that is the underlying principle of both the Shakers and the United community. Yeah. And a lot of other communes, uh, particularly with a Christian uh, sort of bent, yes. that's like a key passage, right? Yep. And um, I don't know, do we know, are there records of how the early church, you know, the early followers of Jesus actually lived? Are they reading that correctly? Yeah, there's definitely records of it. And there's a lot of other uh, parallel sects at the time. Of course, the Essenes are famous from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, asceticism, the denial of, of physical comforts, is certainly another trait that carries through to some of the groups that we'll talk about in our series. Um, but community property, uh, of course, in the Catholic tradition is huge. And we leave Catholic monasticism out of this because it's kind of its own entire world. We're really dealing with Protestant communalism and then uh, secular communalism in North America. Yeah. So just to continue the story of Oneida, I'll just, I'll, you know, it's a long story, but I'll highlight a couple of key things. They evolved their own ways of living and some of them are really interesting. So this complex marriage grew to, to be over 300 people and they built a giant mansion um, and they housed 300 people there and it was a heterosexual marriage, but it basically meant every adult male was married to every adult female. And I called it a free love commune at the beginning of the show, but it isn't quite right. Um, there were, they were highly regulated in who slept with who. And this is where we get into a lot of questions that we're going to have a lot about, about a lot of communes, which is that a lot of the system seemed to be designed to benefit noise. And yes. that he, yeah, he slept with younger women um, and was called first husband, which meant that when they lost their virginity, it was almost exclusively to him. And there was criticism of it. He justified it in theological terms. But that's something that's always intrigued me about communes is that uh, I said earlier in the show, I kind of worry about the people in them. And sometimes that's because I think the most idealistic people are in some ways the most vulnerable to exploitation. I agree. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. And uh, unfortunately for us as male members of our species, there's no doubt that quite a number of these groups are started by charismatic men that then structure their community to systematically sexually exploit their followers. Um, and that's that's pretty much true from the beginning of recorded history all over the world in many different permutations. Uh, but it isn't always true. And, and there really are exceptions to this rule. And, and I don't want to sensationalize this topic in that way. 
but it's something you can't deny. Yeah. And of course, the Shakers are such an interesting contrast being celibate and headed by a female. But speaking of gender equality, there were, as you know, real ways that Oneida was quite liberating for, for women. Women worked, they had positions of power in the community. Men did traditional women's chores along with the women. And of course, they dressed in a very sort of modern way. I think you, you historians call it dress reform. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, correct. So pants and short hair. And when you read the memoirs of the people who lived at Oneida, people were generally pretty happy, at least in the sort of golden age of it. Um, And a couple other little quick things that I found interesting, you know, highlights. One is that they had this really intense system of discipline called mutual criticism, where everybody except, of course, John Humphrey Noyes took a turn on a stage and the other members of the community a panel of them would go at them and and just say what was wrong with them and what their faults were. And it was public and people were criticized for all sorts of things. Some of them very embarrassing, including whether they were good or not at sex. And that's just always, when I first learned about that, I just kind of couldn't believe that that was the thing. And then a couple other quick things. One, they inaugurated a eugenics experiment where they tried to breed people who were more spiritual than the average human and would pick people to partner up and often it was John Humphrey Noyes and a woman. <laughs> he he fathered a good percentage of the children that came out of this experiment. Um, and last, one of the things that's really striking about Oneida is how successful they were economically. As you know, a lot of communes are sort of back to the land is the sensibility. And they do agriculture and that kind of thing. And Oneida tried that, but it didn't work. And where they really kind of hit pay dirt was they became a manufacturing company, first with uh, traps for animals, and then eventually with silverware. So they have a lot of interesting features. They lasted 30 years. And as I said, I think many of the people there were quite happy while it lasted. So it makes an interesting contrast to some of the other experiments we'll be talking about. Yeah, and Dan, I think you have a great point. One of the aspects of women's liberation at Oneida that facilitated such excellent production in the trap factory where many women worked was the fact that women were liberated from having to bear a lot of children. And this was, of course, because of John Humphrey Noyes' system of male continence. Now, male continence involves, uh, we would call it coitus reservatus today, but the male partner would you was, would you Christian is that what you'd call it? <laughs> I'd call it a damn shame, but um, but technically <laughs> the term I believe is coitus reservatus, uh, and so basically the male partner in the sex act, his goal in the United community is to bring the woman to climax, yet to not climax himself, and this was their method of birth control. Noise metaphorically likened it to a man in a rowboat approaching a waterfall. And he had to get to that perfect area. If any of us, you know, you kayak on a river where there's dams, you know, there's that still area of water where you can kind of just keep your oars lightly working before you get sucked over the falls. And he thought that each member of the United community needed to psychologically master getting to that place as a man and not going over the falls as it were. And so It's really interesting because as a sexual practice, it has parallels in a lot of different world cultures, but it it saved women from pregnancy at Oneida. Now, there were accidental pregnancies, but then, of course, as Dan, you mentioned the advent of the eugenics experiment in 1869, they were deliberately getting women pregnant. And that really represented a fundamental shift. Um, The life of the community changed. A lot more jealousies erupted what the Unitas called sticky love, where natural male-female pairings did rear their heads, and the community fathers, particularly noise, did not necessarily want to sanction those unions. And so you had people procreating sometimes against their preference. And that started the gradual breakdown, which led to the dissolution of at least the complex marriage system at Oneida. Yeah. And the last thing I would add to that, I I think it's interesting to look at how some of the communities we're going to look at are still around. Some are long gone. Oneida, you know, is long gone. It's interesting to see the dynamics of how these communities sometimes break down. And you mentioned um, several of them there um, when jealousy comes in and people are less committed to communal values. 
another one that you see here in Oneida is you see sort of the diminishment of the founder. And as he aged, John Humphrey Noyes had trouble hearing and he had trouble speaking. He just lost his grip on the community. And that problem of succession, can authority be transferred, is one I think we're going to be looking at again later on this season as we look at some other communities. Absolutely. Yeah, we will see that time and time again. It's a problem the Shakers were able to solve. But typically, the death of a charismatic leader oftentimes heralds the end of the community. Um, we hope to speak in this series with uh, a woman, Helen Zuman, who is a member of the Zendik farm community. Her memoir, Mating in Captivity, was published a couple of years ago. And she's a person younger than you and I, Dan, who has lived and come out of a sexual system very similar to what John Humphrey Noyes oversaw at the Oneida community. Yeah, um, that'll be a fascinating one. Um, Christian, so the those two, the Shakers and Oneida, two seminal American communes, they're both in their own way based on Christianity. Um, but that's, of course, not the whole tradition in American communes. And you wanted to tell us about New Harmony. Yeah, so certainly a, a lot of these groups historically, as a lot of Western civilizations, come out of Christianity. Yet by the even late 18th century, there were a number of reformers that were certainly coming out of the deist tradition. They believed in a supreme being, but didn't necessarily subscribe to Christianity. We're looking for ways to ameliorate the conditions of the average man and woman. And particularly as the Industrial Revolution started, we're seeing that traditional tradespeople were being now forced to do the same thing over and over again in a factory production line. Robert Owen, uh, a Welsh reformer, was chief among these, and his dream was more of the social millennium. Uh, he was nominally secular, and he wanted to free mankind from what he saw as a trinity of evils. Now, we think of the trinity in Christian tradition. Well, this is a trinity of evils, and his trinity were private property, what he called absurd and irrational religions, and then marriage, which was founded on a combination of both of those things, and that's a nod to women being considered as femme covert in American law, really under the jurisdiction of their husband. You know, what strikes me about that is it's kind of breathtakingly radical, even now, you, you know, you tend, I don't know if you do, but I tend to think of kind of the world getting more progressive as time goes on. But boy, Owen's vision is something, you know. It really is. He'd established a successful experiment in reform. He believed children needed to be basically indoctrinated into his system from a very young age. So he had very liberal working conditions for people that worked in his own factories at New Lanark in Scotland. And he wanted to bring this to the United States because he saw the United States as the most promising environment for this system to flourish. So he purchased an existing communal village founded by the German Harmonist sect at New Harmony, Indiana in 1825. And then he had the audacity on July 4th, 1826, to issue his own declaration of mental independence. And talk about free your mind and your ass will follow, as P-Funk says. Well, he basically wanted uh, the world, and Americans in particular, to mentally free themselves from these traditional shackles uh, of private property religion and marriage. Yeah. And it's, you know, first of all, like that's a famous date for American history nerds. It's the day that John Adams and Thomas Jefferson both die, uh, July 4th, 1826. But I was reading, just prepping the show, I was reading that he actually was invited to speak in front of Congress. And yes. it's just stunning to me, you know, like here's a guy who wants to banish private property, marriage and religion. Yeah, I can't imagine Congress today inviting him to speak, you know. Yeah, I uh, doubt it. <laughs> so anyway, it was a fascinating experiment in New Harmony. Uh, didn't last very long. Unfortunately, in that way, it's it's kind of more typical of these experiments. Dan, you said you feel often a little bit worried for people in their over-idealistic zealousness to embrace these systems. And people flocked to New Harmony. Uh, it was hugely publicized. 
And a lot of people showed up that wanted to just live off the community, but didn't want to contribute to it on an equal basis. And that really is the crux of the issue. That's what the pilgrims at Plymouth faced is you're going to have some people that are going to give more and take less, and you're going to have people that are going to give less and take more. And so New Harmony fizzled out after really only uh, two years and change. Well, and, you know, it didn't go great, but I think arguably in the running for communes that went worst is the the last one you wanted to talk about today. So why don't you tell us about that? Yeah. So we've covered three examples, two explicitly Christian and with different social sexual arrangements, one nominally secular that sought to revolutionize the world. And then we're going to deal with this fourth one, which in terms of our archetypes demonstrates a really tragic ending. And that is the Jonestown settlement in Guyana Reverend Jim Jones, who founded the People's Temple, which was a church really with a social justice mission that attracted a lot of African-American followers and did a lot of social service work. People lived in communal houses in the group, and they had a big following in the Bay Area, but they did relocate to Guyana in South America. And when worried relatives in the United States of some of these people that had left the country asked Congress to to figure out what was going on, it triggered Jim Jones, who was truly a messianic figure, and and Noyes was as well. But Jones had uh, a lot of other issues, including drug abuse. And so he actually forced his followers to commit suicide. And those that didn't voluntarily, as we all know, drank the Kool-Aid, which was actually flavor aid, they were (laughs) shot down by Jones's assistants. So These communities can have so many different outcomes, and some of them don't have an outcome. They're still going. But the the visions that they put into practice, really, Dan, as you said in the beginning of this episode, are illustrative uh, and reflective of bigger problems in American society and and how folks want to deal with them. Um, A couple issues that I I think of when you you describe Jonestown, um, one of them exceedingly trivial. First of all, the, the Marketing department of Kool Aid thanks you for that clarification. <laughs> I think. Um, wait, wait, wait you, like seriously though, what is Flavor Aid? Did it go under after Jonestown? You don't remember Flavor Aid? I don't, and I'm older oh. than you. I think. <laughs> yeah, well, it was just another kind of powdered drink thing. Now, in fairness to Flavor Aid, they actually had both on the property. There's a film made by the congressional delegation that was sent to investigate Jonestown that happens to capture an open crate of these powdered drink mixes literally the day before the suicide. And I believe both Flavor-Aid and Kool-Aid are in there, but I think that it was just Flavor-Aid that was used the day of. Uh, well, we don't have a sponsor for the show yet, but uh, for good people <laughs> Kool-Aid are listening, uh, give us a ring. No, I, I, I actually, I wanna try to get Crystal Light on board if we can. um so an issue that occurs to me from from jonestown i just want to raise it um because it's going to come back this season is the issue of the term cult and of course if you talk to most people about jonestown they'll call it a cult not a commune i'm not arguing that it it is a commune i accept that based on all the definitions um but i don't think we've used the word cult yet today and I don't think we're going to resolve this, but I have a feeling that this is going to be a question you and I go back and forth on as we look at different groups over the course of the season. And I don't know if you have any quick thoughts on that. Well, cult certainly has a um, immediate negative connotation. I think anytime that word is used, and it's really funny because it really hasn't always been that way. Talk, people talk about the cult of Mary and Catholicism, and that's not a negative thing at all, or certainly um, different cults in the ancient world. But it's become applied generically in our culture to groups more like the Manson family or Jonestown. I don't like the word personally. But I'm speaking as someone who's agnostic and interested broadly in all religions. So I don't have anything invested in any one of them in particular. For me, it's a sliding scale. Well, we hope to have on the show later this season, Helen Zuman to talk about Zendik Farm. And I know she has strong views on that. So I I suspect we'll be returning to this issue. Um, But why don't you tell us a little bit about some of the shows we've got coming up before we wind up? Yeah, we're going to be looking at some really remarkable 
and unbelievable stories this season. Our next episode will focus on Cyrus Reed Teed, who renamed himself Koresh, as in the Hebrew word for Cyrus from the Bible. He was the leader of a group called the Koreshian Unity, who believed that the earth was a concave sphere and was hollow, that we live on the inside of the earth's crust and all the cosmos are within. He believed that he himself had become immortal and was leading his followers toward that same outcome. One of my favorites is the story of John Murray Spear. Spear thought he could revolutionize the world and redeem the human race through the creation of an electrical infant, he called it, or a living motor. And he actually worked with mechanics in Massachusetts to build this motor, which would then be animated uh, through harnessing sexual energy from his followers. So it's almost like Frankenstein. But this really happened, and he founded an intentional community as well. We'll be talking to someone who's written his biography. Incredible. I can't wait. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, I'm, Christian, I'm so excited to go on this, this journey with you to learn more about communes and their place in American history. And of course, we're just uh, delighted to have Ch Travis Chandler at the controls as our crack composer and producer. And uh, we'll see you next time on Communes USA. And Dan, before I let you and Travis go, do you both agree to honor me and, and listen to all my instructions as you would the Holy Ghost? <laughs> uh, so long as we stay here forever and it's not just a temporary thing, because I'm not doing that whole just, you know, it's not this quite forever, a whole thing. This is forever, Travis. This is <laughs> right. forever. As long as I can, as long as I can keep my coat, Christian. As long as I yes. can keep my coat. <laughs> Inform your wife immediately following the show, please, Dan and Travis. <laughs> can do. All right. <laughs>